0: This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at Slate.com slash GIST News. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Tuesday, July 23rd, 2019. From Slate, it's the GIST I Mike Pesco. We are T-minus one day. Until that big Mueller testimony, when it all turns, I think I'm going to take a time capsule of this today. So I remember what life was like before the Mueller testimony turned around this whole zombie rat-infested ship estate. That's a big note self. Time capsule for the before times. There's also ongoing protests in Puerto Rico over offensive texts sent by their governor, Ricardo Rossello. I'm sure I could pronounce it better in espanol, but you know what? I think it might be insulting if I try to lean into the Rossello. So I'm just going to say Rossello. My apologies if I'm not saying it perfectly. But anyway, what Rossello did was, in a group text with some fellow cronies, I think cronies is fair, some lobbyists and other officials, he called a female politician a puta, you know, a whore. He mocked Hurricane Maria cadavers. He mocked Ricky Martin with transphobic language. Upside, inside, out. Okay, I'll take all of those in reverse order. First, the out. Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans apparently want Rosello out. Inside, yes, the insiders in the Rosello administration are getting charged. Six members of the Rosello administration were indicted for fraud and money laundering a couple weeks ago. Upside, I don't know if there's much of an upside. Maybe it's this: that the texts were the spark that got citizens to express themselves. They are shocking. They represent the most vile concentration of the mind, but they aren't the deep-rooted discontent that is so bothering the Puerto Rican people. Rossello, and you can tell this, he has no substantive rebuttal. He knows he could get Trump on his side. That's clear. He always does a little non-insulting of Trump. So Trump kind of likes the guy. And he knows that uh, he has some levers To get Trump to like him more, he can insult women or gays or Puerto Ricans. But Trump is widely loathed in Puerto Rico. So the strategy of becoming his island's Bolsonaro or Duterte, it doesn't seem to be a winning strategy. So Rossello has done the one thing he can do. He has shaved his beard. For months, Rossello was sporting, I have to say, a quite fetching salt and pepper whisker situation there on his face but he obviously realized it wasn't the face shield he'd been hoping for. Almost no politicians these days wear beards. They connote, beards do, furtiveness, also politicians do, but beards say to the electorate, I've got something to hide. And this was one instance where that was not the right thing to be saying. Rossello did have maybe one more move in his bag of tricks. And here yesterday was CNN with the big news The island was dying to hear. After eight days of protests, the governor of Puerto Rico has just announced. Just announced. Deep in hell. Big news. Here it comes. He will not seek re-election. Re-election. Will not seek re-election. Jeffrey Epstein will not seek a seat on the Clinton Foundation board. Also will not seek tenure at the Dalton School for Privileged Youth. Rossello will not seek re-election. I don't know to emphasize the seek or the re-election because he wasn't getting it either way. And now he is hanging on by a thread or a hair, just not of the facial variety. On the show today, the man they call Britain Trump as described by the man they call United States Boris. Ugh. But first, former professional basketball player, Chris Heron had enormous talent but an addiction, first of alcohol, then cocaine, then opioids. It almost killed him, certainly destroyed his career. But in the last few years, he's been on tour talking to kids on their level, not about his life, but about theirs. John Hawk, one of the great documentarians behind ESPN's 30 for 30 series, has shot a special, which is an amalgam of Heron talking to different groups of students. I talked to Heron about how he found his communication style and how he realized what messages get through and which were self-indulgent. Chris Heron and his new ESPN film, The First Day, up next. Chris Heron was one of the greatest young basketball players in the country and it's not as if the promise didn't bear fruit. He went on to a really good career at Fresno State, was drafted by the Denver Nuggets, played a couple years in the NBA, but it came undone largely due to substance abuse issues. Now, and for the last few years, Chris Herron has been doing all he can to reach kids, kids like himself who may be tempted to try drugs, try drinking. I mean, Chris heron has been so famous that when he was 15 or 16 years old, there was a really good book written about him and his high school team. And let me read you a quote. This is Heron at about 15 years old. I realize now that I probably drank too much for a kid my age, but it was because of the lifestyle I was living. I was 15 years old hanging out with 18-year-olds and I did what they did, but basketball is more important to me than drinking and now I have to watch it. That's the right thing to say when you're 16 years old. It's just a harder thing to live. Chris Heron is part of a new ESPN documentary. He was part of an old ESPN documentary directed by Jonathan and Hawk is part of the 30 for 30 series, all about his life. This new one is just what Chris Heron says to high school kids. It's Heron giving, I think, a collection of seven talks cut together, and we see the reactions of his story and his advice on the faces of the high school kids. Chris, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. So, is this something you chose to do? I mean, cliche as it is, it does seem like you really had no choice. Like the phrase calling or the word calling gets thrown out there. But I don't know. I get the impression. How could you not be doing this?
1: You know, absolutely. It's, um, it's something I am passionate about, I believe in, um, and I've grown through um, and with it, the message, right? So when I first started public speaking eight and a half years ago, nine years ago, it was my story. Yeah. And as an educator, as a presenter, as someone who has the responsibility to be in front of children, I didn't feel like I was doing enough. I was half in, right? Mm-hmm. I, I could go in and flip the switch and tell my story for an hour and leave.
0: Yeah. Um, and people would be interested and satisfied. Very interested. You were very, in the NBA. Very you interested. You all this promise. And then right. you talk about... All the terrible things that happened to you and that you did to yourself on drugs, and it was it was interesting. Right,
1: very interested, uh, very satisfied, but not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would leave the schools, and I would get messages on social media or emails saying, "I'm, I'm going to pray for you, or I really hope it, everything works out for you." Mm-hmm. Um, and I never got their story.
0: Right, right. So you, I had everything was saying, it, hoping about you.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah. And and I wanted to find a way to to get through to them to hear their story. And I decided to switch the message. And a lot had to do with, I did the note to self with, you know, Charlie Rose and Gail King on the morning show. Mm -hmm. And I had to write a note to my younger self and 500 words. And I said, you know, I wrote a book. This can be, this will be easy. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to write a note to my younger self. And through that process, I said, you know, I want to get kids to identify, and I started talking about my younger self, and it seemed to resonate.
0: When you do these talks, so we should say you've been you've been sober for nine years. Nope, I've been sober for eleven years. Oh yeah, because on the tape you say nine years, but it was from from a couple years ago. So congratulations on that. And what was uh, the nature of your addiction beforehand? Oh gosh,
1: what wasn't it? Um, You know, I started with alcohol as a young kid, and Transitioned to marijuana and, and slowly into, into cocaine in college very early on, which, you know, I was, I was kicked out of Boston College because of that um, at, at 19 years old and went on to Fresno. Struggled with cocaine at Fresno, um, but also entered a world of Vicodins and Percocets while I was playing college basketball, which ultimately led to Oxycontin and slowly transitioned into heroin. Um, so
0: they would test you for cocaine?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I tested positive multiple times for cocaine. And what did they do? Just ignore the test? Find a way for you to play? No, they, you know, it was different. BC at the time, um, 1994, um, they were strictly punishment. You know, we're going to suspend, suspend, suspend. Yeah. I moved out to Fresno. Strict
0: Catholic school. Right.
1: Makes sense. Right. And Fresno was more um, treatment-based, you know, therapeutic. And we're going to get you counseling. We're going to get you into meetings. They introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. They tried everything they could. Unfortunately, I wasn't ready. um, And I continued to battle. And they put it on the table that I had to go away to a treatment center. Um, So at 21, I checked into a treatment center for cocaine.
0: And I battled with it for 11 more years was the fact that they wanted you to do labor for them. They wanted you on the basketball team. Did that complicate the process? Um, They obviously saw you as a person, but also they were getting something out of you, and so when they put you in treatment, maybe that's not the best way to do it. I don't know. Well, the culture of of a treatment
1: center is critical, Mm -hmm. right? I walked into a treatment center in in Salt Lake City, Utah, and 95% of the people in that center were 20 years older than me. Yeah. And— it's hard to identify, right? And that's the whole premise of the first day, right? It's, 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 I walked into a treatment center at 21, and I listened to grown men and women talk about the worst day. And, right. and I was like, I'm not there. right? You know, This is not me. Um, I'll never do what you're doing. I don't need to listen to your stories because I'm never going to take it that far. So it, it didn't allow me to kind of settle in and say, wait a second, you're 21, and you are taking a chance at dying by jamming cocaine up your nose, and everything you've worked for for the last 12 years is about to go out the window. Yeah. Um, You know, it wasn't laid out to me in that that way.
0: So that's why in this documentary, you say to the kids, when you think of a drug addict, you're going to think of someone that is not like you and it's also why you talk about the idea of rock bottom and kind of blow past it Mm. because we saw that in the last documentary and you wrote a book about it and so Mm -hmm. we got to know your rock bottom but it seems like you're also saying someone else's rock bottom is not going to be meaningful to a 17-year-old.
1: Right. It's safe to show you pictures of drug addicts and say look how disgusting their life turns out. It's safe to put people with no teeth up on a big board and say, look what crystal meth does to the body. That's safe.
0: But nobody asked about the beginning.
1: That's what, that's what they expect.
0: Yes. They've heard that talk a lot. They've heard it. Scared straight.
1: Right. <laughs> and, it's an, and, and honestly, I think you know, that's where we've done such a huge disservice to this generation. It's, you know, if you ask them to come into the assembly with a picture of a drug addict, they bring the worst picture they could possibly Google. Right nobody identifies someone suffering from addiction you know when they're 21 so you know the way we've branded it the way we've laid it out to them is 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 unsettling it's unfair and i think that's why the kids with this presentation it, it resonated because it kind of talks about the core of emotion and and the emptiness that kids are feeling the pressure the stress the anxiety and the battle that they're going through internally but don't know where to go with it mm-hmm. and and the first the, the first kind of introduction for them of self-medicating is, you know, a six-pack. Yeah. And that's where they get their level of comfort. I hope, um, you know, this, this is the beginning of something larger, of something bigger, a movement of people who want to change the curriculum.
0: And you also say things that clearly will resonate with them, like... Uh Like, they don't know the real you. Mm -hmm. And I wonder as an adult, I mean, that's what all kids think. But is it something, hey, if it works and if it seems or is empathetic, then all power to it. But at the same time, you know, is that really uh, how people legitimately think? Or is that just what a kid tells himself or herself about why he's starting to do a drug?
1: (sighs) You know, what, what I've found over the years doing this is parents, grandparents, siblings matter yeah. to a high school kid.
0: Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's all there. You talk about your little siblings and your mother and father. You probably mentioned disappointing your mother and father like six times. Right. In that. Because I think, you know, that's what, that's what
1: resonates with them. That's what really pulls at their emotion. And and when I talk about covering up my mistakes as a kid, because I grew up in an alcoholic home and I knew my mother struggled with my father's drinking and the lengths I went to to not disappoint her. yeah. That she didn't have to find out that her little boy was now drinking his father's Miller Lights on Friday nights to have fun. That speaks loudly to children. You know, this, this film is—it's is, not going to reach everybody, right? I mean, yes. but, you know, there are kids out there that, that are growing up in alcoholic homes and, and drug-addicted homes. And they're genetically predisposed to this. And they need to know that. And, and we've done a horrible job at presenting that to kids. You know, that trauma— or the genetic component to this is gonna play a factor. And we haven't laid that out to kids. We haven't given them enough
0: info on that. Do you think that realizing that it speaks to kids to talk about disappointing your parents or living up to your little brothers and sisters, did you figure that out through trial and error in your Mm. speeches? And then, so then what, how to click that this was working? The tears. Uh-huh.
1: You know, it was the tears. It was kids putting their heads down. I knew it resonated, right? Because I would see shoulders shrug and, 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 and heads drop. And, and I knew that was, that was a big factor. And, I, you know, it, it came to me by way of... Um, I was talking to the L.A. Kings and a, a gentleman... The hockey team. The hockey team. Like the
0: street gang? No, the <laughs> hockey team. <laughs> no, I've
1: been with the street gangs too. Um, but, the, but the hockey team and... A guy asked me one day, when you were younger, would you wait in line for your own autograph?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, no, absolutely not. So I presented that to the LA Kings. All these guys are out here waiting for you to sign their sticks, to sign their pucks, to sign their jerseys. Would you wait in line for your own autograph? And, and, and I saw that touch them a little bit, you know, like it, it spoke to who they were, it made them look within. And I started to position it with the little sister, little brother. You know, would they look up to you?
0: Do you, different kinds of audiences, inner city, suburban. I saw that the seven uh, the seven schools that were listed, I know a couple of them. Some are from pretty wealthy areas on Long Island. Some mm-hmm. are from lesser wealthy areas upstate. Uh, do you change the message depending on the audience?
1: I changed the tempo. Uh huh. The me. message is pretty much the same, but the tempo was a little different. And, and again... You know, I'll walk into a public school in Chicago in an affluent area, but there's 4,000 students in a gym. Right. Right. And there's no time for hesitation with 4,000 students. And, and so the tempo has to be quick. It has to come fast and come hard to keep their attention. Um, you know, my favorite audience to me, the, the kids who pay the most attention are inner city schools mm-hmm. or prep schools. Yeah. The middle class kids. They don't seem to want...
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I think because they're growing up a little faster. I yeah. think they're on their own a little bit more. I think their parents are, are, are both working or divorced. Yeah. Um, they have a little more freedom. And, you know, they haven't really felt the, the consequences of addiction. They're not seeing it so, so much on a daily basis. The inner city kids, they walk in there and there's a bunch of them immediately... That have brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, and they respect the message.
0: Yeah, and the prep schools, the prep schools just—they're just
1: polite. Uh, they're just polite kids, just polite kids <laughs> yeah. you know. And they're interested, right? right. They—they want to kind of debate it, and and they want to kind of—they want to talk uh, talk about it on an intellectual level. Do you,
0: do kids from those schools though reach out? Oh, in the gosh. same percentage.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And and honestly, you know, and people hear this often, but. You know, prep schools are no different than inner city schools. I right. mean, and the problems sometimes are greater, yeah. you know, because they have the access and the resources to get it. So they start off at a higher level. It's just they have multiple parachutes on their
0: back. So, th- I mean, this, this is called the first day. It's mm-hmm. not about the last day. It's about the first day. Mm-hmm. Is the message abstinence? Is the message don't do a drug ever? And is that a realistic message?
1: No, it's not a realistic message. But the, but the message is prevention. Like, let's prevent, right? There's science that has come out that if you allow the frontal lobe of your brain to fully develop, and usually that's between the age of 21 and 23, yeah. um, the chances of you suffering from an addiction drop drastically. Um, you know, we have laws in place. Like, let's, let's prevent it until they're grown up enough. You know, listen, I have a 20-year-old. Uh, my 20 year old up to this point in life has chosen not to smoke or not to drink. Um, if he chooses to do so in his adult years, that's his choice, right? Will I monitor it closely? Yeah. Absolutely, because he comes from a lineage of alcoholics and addicts.
0: Does he know to come to you if he starts oh, doing that?
1: Oh, I would hope so. You'd think so. I would hope so. You know, I often say my brother, you know, my brother was, was my protector, and, you know, we knew. Um, coming home at night after a basketball game, whether it was going to be a good night or a bad night, right? I could tell if the lights were on. I could tell if music was playing. I could tell if my parents were together on the first floor, mm-hmm. if, if I did okay. Yeah. Um, so there were was, there was so many other things going on in my life that were not, had yet to be identified, and not only identified, but, like, let's try to talk about this and, and how you feel about it, right? Instead of, you know, he, he's a kid, he'll get through it. Some kids don't. Do you think this will increase the message exponentially? What do you think will happen from it? I, I, I hope so. Uh, but I also hope that people, re- like I'm a speaker. I'm a former basketball player, right? Yeah. I'm hoping professionals and, and, and get behind this message. Everybody, uh, uh, I, I haven't met anybody that, that disagrees with me on this. If you can give me the reason why wellness isn't a core class in our children's school system, I'd love to hear it. I would love to understand why wellness isn't a core class. Right. Tell me, I mean, like someone give me the reason because I can't, I've yet to hear it that with all the pressures kids face today from social media and on, there's not a classroom for wellness. And, you know, we, we're we're putting so much emphasis on the wrong things right now where kids need a place to learn how to grow, to cope and to develop, um, Social and emotional intelligence and, and, and a place where they can feel safe and, and talk about the pressures they're facing. We don't have it and, and we haven't had it. And, and I think, you know, when it comes to education, prevention, wellness, we've done little around this.
0: The new documentary, The First Day, is on ESPN right now. And check out those ESPN apps so that you can access it and see the speech that uh, Chris, or a version thereof, of the speech that Chris Herron has been giving to high school kids for the last couple of years. Chris, great to meet you. Great to meet you as well. Thank you. And now the spiel. It seems to me that Boris Johnson, the new PM of the UK, has always lived life as if there were no consequences which is so strange for a man clearly desperate to be consequential. Johnson is a type of figure virtually unknown in America, a wit who embraces his own pomposity, but somehow comes off as lovable and relatable because of it. Blame or credit, P.G. Woodhouse, but it seems to have no analog in American public life. Perhaps, thinking here, perhaps something like the sitcom character Frazier. But could Frazier get elected mayor of the country's largest city twice and then get elected leader of the country itself? Perhaps with a cabinet of his dad as running the Justice Department and Roz and Daphne. I don't know. I digress into a bit of Frazier fanfic reverie, uh, only because the reality that we're experiencing is a bit more bracing than black coffee and scrambled eggs. Boris Johnson cynically orchestrated the Leave campaign, mostly to help himself at the cost of hurting most of Britain. The galling thing is, it seems to have worked. Johnson d- didn't exactly have his hand on the rudder the whole time. The UK lurched from one self inflicted calamity to the next. But in the end, there is Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson taking up residence in 10 Downing Street, where Churchill dwelled and Neville Chamberlain. I personally tend to overrate people based on wit. And I do think Johnson is in possession of some form of it. British friends of mine tell me he's more like a baboon, but I get it, I get the joke. Today he commented on the goals of his campaign, the winning goals, which rested on what he talked about as being three planks. Deliver Brexit, unite the country, defeat Jeremy Corbyn. I know, I know some waggles already pointed out that deliver, unite, and defeat was not the perfect acronym for an election campaign, since unfortunately it spells dud. But they forgot the final e, my friends, e for energise. And I say, I say to all the doubters, dude, we are going to energise the country. We're going to get. I got to tell you, the dude humour played well in that room of upper crusty, pasty face conservatives. Know your audience, dude. Now that room, that cloistered room, is significant. For while Johnson is the leader of all of the UK, he attained this post thanks to a grand total of 92,153 votes. That is 0.13% of the British population. The party, the Conservative Party, selects, elects. And so we have a man running a nation of 66 million people with the world's fifth largest economy, rapidly falling down the charts, by the way, who, if his vote totals were transposed to the parliamentary election he would have gotten fewer votes than the Northern Ireland Socialist Democratic and Labor Party got. Their vote total of 95,000 votes in the last election earned them zero seats in Parliament, by the way. The Prime Minister of Great Britain is there thanks to fewer votes than the mayor of San Jose, California got, than the mayor of Jacksonville, Florida got. Wait, you're saying, hold on. Lenny Curry got more votes than Boris Johnson. Yeah, in 2015, he did, but turnout was low this time around. It doesn't matter. We're not talking about Lenny Curry. We're talking about Boris Johnson, or as our president says, they call him. They're saying Britain Trump. They call him Britain Trump. And people are saying that's a good thing that they like me over there. Britain Trump, not British, which is the adjective, not British Trump, which, by the way, they're not calling him also, but Britain Trump which they're also not calling him. Who is calling this guy Britain Trump? Is it Canada Kennedy up there? Handsome Dan from Ottawa? You know what I mean? Is, is Trump saying that German woman, you know, or new German woman, is she the one who's calling him Britain Trump? Or is it that the actual English, the very people who invented the language and named it, they're calling him Britain Trump? Why would they, Why would they misuse their own language? And why would they misuse it in the exact same way and with the exact same garbled syntax as Donald Trump has? Funny, funny that. Not witty, not funny haha, not Noel Coward, Bon Mo funny, more like taking a once great country down a sad path based on lies and personality cults funny. Oh wait, Britain Trump, now I get it. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienneme and Daniel Schrader. They are dutiful, unsung, daring, effervescent dudes and young duty. Today, on What Next, right now, if you go over there, our sister, perhaps gendered, perhaps unfair, perhaps diminutive, though I love my sister, our sister podcast has an interview with a strategist who helped defeat David Duke. In some ways, this guy's tactics might apply to the present. Very good interview with a guy named Tim Wise on What Next. If you're interested in the GIST newsletter, and why wouldn't you be, you can subscribe to it at slate.com slash gistnews. And there you'll get a rundown of the week's episodes and also an answer to a trivia question. Here is this week's trivia question. When Chris Herron played on Fresno State, he had a teammate who was involved in an unusual type of assault. I'm sure it was very scary for the man who was assaulted, but this teammate apparently brandished a what weapon, what kind of weapon, in an assault while playing at Fresno State. That is the trivia question. The gist. I'm thinking of shaving my beard to sidestep criticism, but also growing out an unruly mop of straw on my head to cement my reputation as a shambolic, lovable nincompoop. Anyway, these are just the thoughts occurring to me as I, hang dangling from this zipline, should have worn some less snug trousers. oom poo da poo doo and thanks for listening.